This is Trade Policy Comments with Christopher Fjellner and guests on the latest in trade. With me here today, I have uh, a good friend of mine and colleague here in the European Parliament, Artis Pavriks, EPP member from Latvia in the European Parliament. And who's... with me, I have Christopher Fjellner. Yes, and uh, you've done a lot of things in Latvia. I've been, I think, Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of Defence. But now, the reason that you're here with me right now is because you happen to be the Parliament's go-to guy and responsible for the free trade negotiations and free trade agreement with Canada. What would be your elevator pitch for this free trade agreement? I would actually say that as a trade agreement, this is much more important uh, today than maybe a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we experienced Brexit, we experienced um, elections of a new president who wants to make America great again. And we are looking forward actually for elections in a number of EU countries like Netherlands, France and Germany yeah. at the second part of uh, uh, 2017. And we all can see that political force which is running against the trade, against globalization, for closing doors, for closing windows, for the returning into the nation state. And SETA, in my view, at this moment is a litmus test. Mm. Do we close doors, windows, eyes, ears, and finally our mouths are shut as well? Or we are actually embracing the change? Because That's the, the meta underlying foundation that we working together with in favor of free trade, we face huge opposition and more and more for every day, I would say, in Europe, but also globally. But when it comes to the free trade agreement with Canada, what do you think would be the benefits of this specific free trade agreement, aside of the fact that it's an important part of the overall task to combat protectionism? Well, uh, there are economic values. Their moral values mm. and their geopolitical values. Economically, of course, any kind of relatively good trade agreement is in a shorter, longer time span bringing additional benefits, additional wealth, additional money, which then nation states can distribute. We face all the time people say, oh, but how much money will the TTIP negotiations deliver with the free trade negotiation with the US? And, and often it's impossible to answer because you don't have a text, you haven't agreed anything. But this, have you seen anything you feel like? This sounds credible when it comes to economic benefits of CETA. Well, I, I think that there are a number of Kyle And uh, to be objective, Mm. I would say that I don't want to speculate about the numbers. What is important is tendency. And the tendency is growing. Mm. It's very clear. Will it be 200,000, as some claim? Will it be 150,000? doesn't matter. No. It will be more. Now, the interesting thing, I think, is that we did a similar, not as good free trade agreement with South Korea a couple of years ago. I heard somebody saying like 200,000 more jobs as a consequence of South Korea, for example, and hopefully maybe this would get somewhere the same. But I'm also reluctant to use numbers when you talk about this, because it depends, of course, on how is the economy in general going? Will we have global tendencies for, for protectionism? So there's so many other factors. But there is a geopolitical reason you talked about as well. Precisely, because Canadians are people like us. Mm. If we look outside Europe for somebody who are more similar to us Europeans, then Canadians, in my view, are number one. Mm. And Canadians have been historically tied to Europe. Canadians are today 
tied to Europe because also according to the latest uh, Warsaw NATO summit, Canadian soldiers are actually already, while we speak, landing at the sandy beaches of the Baltic to protect EU yeah. outside border against the hypothetical threat. Yeah. So I think it's important that we are with our economic decisions, because there's always side effects with our economic decisions, we are also giving additional impetus to other political decisions. And by adopting SETA, we are actually making transatlantic links stronger and Atlantic Ocean more narrow. And morally, I think it's important for us Europeans now when we see that, for instance, uh, the new administration of Trump yeah. is very hesitant about the trade agreements, that they are looking towards some kind of protectionism. I think it's highly important that if we want a future for European Union, and I want future yeah. for European Union, that we are grasping opportunity, telling we Europeans actually are for real liberal democratic values. We are ready to trade with Southeast Asia. We are ready to trade with Singapore. We are ready to trade with Japan. Yeah. Let's take this position. In the context of the uh, American president-elect, who focuses a lot on criticizing the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, somebody once told me that the EU-Canada Free Trade Agreement is actually more ambitious and would liberalize trade even more than the US-Canadian Trade Agreement, NAFTA, does today, which would in a sense mean that we have opportunity while the US is going protectionist to actually, as you say, bind Canada and the EU together to closer tie even, not in maybe in moral terms, but in economic terms than the free trade agreement at least tries to do with NAFTA. Well, just before this discussion um, with you, I had a chance to meet some 20, 30 Canadian and uh, US students. Mm. And uh, I proposed them this idea of what you are telling now, that in fact, it's also very beneficial for Canadians because they would have a possibility really to have this trade and economic and political ties on the right and on the left, yeah. I mean, across Atlantic and also across Pacific. Mm. So, in fact, they are becoming really this star mm. of a freedom in uh, North American continent. And uh, I think and that is, is something we need now, stars of freedom. They're I mean, not that common around the we, we world. Need a, we need a hope. We yeah. need a star to whom to follow. And I think Canadians are, are traditionally, I mean, they like such positions. So, yeah. it's, it's, it's great. It's a small country. They can make decisions maybe faster. So, we can learn as Europeans also something from Canadians. But today we had a vote in the European Parliament on whether to refer this agreement to the European Court of Justice. It was claimed to be because they were concerned whether the legality of the investment protection, but I think both you and I, and I think most colleagues would probably admit the fact that it's mainly about whether people like the idea of this agreement or don't like the agreement. There were probably few people who voted to refer to the European Court of Justice that want to adopt the agreement. But it's clearly, as we saw in the vote today, a very controversial thing, this agreement, even though Canada is a very close ally to us. Why do you think it's so controversial? How come there's become a, such a big fuzz about the free trade agreement with Canada of all the countries in the world? I think there is a lot of ideology behind this. And sorry to be, let's say, very straight talking, because I think we that like there that. Are, <laughs> well, but there are a number of people who are against this trade agreement because they simply think that the trade agreements are evil things. I would really object to this approach because, you know, you do not blame a hammer, which is hitting on your finger, blame no. the hand. So trade agreement simply brings more benefits, how national government distributes, ask those people you elect. Mm. 
so this is one part of people which object for probably ignoring simply logics or healthy thinking. Then there are some other part of people which are simply sinister because they somehow have this traditional view that America and everything which is in American continent is mm. bad. So they contribute to likening Canadians to Americans and they simply don't want this transatlantic tie. They rather make deals with authoritarian leaders like Putin, but they mm. don't want to make a deal with Ottawa or Washington. But let's go back to that because acronyms are controversial in general. We have acronyms like CETA, and then people start being worried. We have an even more controversial acronym, which is TTIP, the free trade negotiation with the US. But To my understanding, at least in the European Parliament and in many member states in the European Union, the acronym USA is probably the most controversial of all acronyms. Do you think there would have been a debate over the free trade negotiations with Canada and this free trade agreement if it wouldn't be parallel to the discussion about the free trade agreement with the US? Isn't this like a starter and people that would like to go against TTIP uses this agreement and the poor Canadians, even though it's not Canada they care about? It's an extremely good question, Christopher, because we never heard a discussion on number of other countries of uh, similar or even a higher relevance. Did we hear much discussion on trade agreement with South Korea? No. Nope. Uh, did we hear all these, you know, convinced people, you know, about criminal court or justice court or whatever places uh, mm. speaking about a deal with Japan? Not whatsoever. No. This is kind of an attempt to find any kind of reason just to punish Americans. Mm. And I think these people make actually a double mistake because they forgot, in fact, what Americans, with all their strengths and weaknesses, Mm. have been giving to these people, which are now, sorry to say, frequently running a free ride of Western European welfare state. If there would not be United States martial support, if there would not be a United States after the Second World War, then these people probably would be the ones who would share uh, the same uh, family history like uh, my people under the Soviet domination. So, unfortunately, memory is very short. When it comes to the criticism of this free trade agreement, there is, of course, the underlying causes, but they, they tend to pick up specific things also to shoot that. What kind of arguments or areas do you frequently meet where people raise criticism? Well, uh, as far as the concrete set agreement, um, of course, first of all, many people like to speak about transparency. Mm. So this is one of the kind of illusions that, you know, there are always these evil elites, these politicians Mm. who are not doing things transparently. Not everything is transparent like glass, Mm. but if you want at least a more efficiency than zero, then sometimes you need also to do certain diplomatic uh, things behind the closed doors. And by telling this, I'm not telling that, you know, there should not be a transparency. Yes, but it should be reasonable. Mm. I think that these claims are actually unreasonably claiming no transparency. Second, especially since we know that this is probably one of the most transparent free trade negotiations we've ever had. When I meet that argument, normally from people from the Greens or from the left, I constantly come back to say, I will listen to your arguments about transparency if you start to show the same transparency with your group meetings, with your internal discussions, when you do negotiations. I've been negotiating so much legislation myself with colleagues from Greens and Socialists and the left, and they have never publicly 
publish their mandates or their positions prior to the negotiations, but they want us to do it, even though we know that if our negotiators should deliver the best they can, they probably have to actually keep some cards up their sleeves so they don't show the negotiators. Nobody would do their own negotiations the same way if it was important for them as individuals. Well, this was my usual uh, game of questions when I was still teaching in university mm. because I was coming to students and told them, look, do you want a negotiator in diplomatic affairs like your foreign minister going to any other country, even which could be a country mm. with whom you have some kind of uh, disagreements, uh, putting uh, 100% everything transparently on the table to mm. the opposite side and uh, so losing the game? So do you want really to have a transparency, yeah. uh, knowing that you will simply lose by this transparency. Yeah. And I think that, of course, we have these um, serious concerns, uh, like they're claiming citizens' concerns about uh, food safety and quality and possibilities that some large corporations are uh, misusing these trade agreements. Yes, up to a certain extent, all these questions are just questions, justifiable questions. But the problem is, that these people, whoever they are, who are running against agreement like CETA, they heard the answers, I would say, 58 times. Mm. But they never took them in their mind. They heard, they, but they, they, they never heard listened. It. They didn't <laughs> listen, yes. So I think in such cases, transparency doesn't work because we could sit in a greenhouse and yeah. nobody would anyway say that it's transparent. It's, it's interesting because at the end of these discussions and during this question about signing this agreement, there was plenty of declarations being written, declarations explaining why Canadian companies wouldn't be able to sue us for having public health care or why they wouldn't be able to export hormone beef or everything. I used to call these declarations CETA for dummies, more or less. But even though all these texts explaining, laying out the facts that are actually in the agreement in itself is out there, it is as if people don't read them. There's a lot of specific issues that sparked a lot of debate and attention. And I thought it might be a good idea to just run through some of them and see what your arguments is around these different things. And the first thing that's been debated a lot is something called geographical indicators. And just so that whoever's listened to this understand what geographical indicators is, it's the rules we have in the European Union saying that feta cheese, for example, has to come from Greece, Parma ham has to come from Parma, champagne from champagne, and so on and so forth. And there's some people, mainly in the agriculture sector and mainly also from southern European countries saying that we don't have enough protection of geographical indicators. What do you say about that? Do you hear that argument a lot? Yes, this is one of the arguments what we do here. And of course, we understand concerns of uh, European farmers and producers uh, who would like to defend their special mark, what they have been maybe mm. producing for uh, decades or hundreds of years. And in this case, I have two comments. Mm. First comment is that, yes, we included about 140 European geographical indicators for food and drink products, yeah. which of course, doesn't cover everything what we wanted. Well, because I think we have thousands of them in Europe. Well, at probably. least 500. Uh, but uh, we must understand that the trade deal in general is some kind of a compromise. And first, we can make this number larger in mm. future. It's open, it's possible. But secondly, I kind of understand also the Canadian argument. Imagine that there is a, a Swedish uh, special producer of yeah. what I heard, I never tried, <laughs> but what I heard about these extremely smelly herrings, oh, what you are oh. sometimes opening. 
listening, and somebody would like to tell that this is particularly only a Swedish product. Yeah. But then you have some Swedish guy who, let's say, 20 years ago immigrated to Canada yeah. with his maybe uh, special uh, family hearing yeah. production way. Yeah. And uh, Sweden now is asking uh, mm. geographical indicator for Sweden, am I not a Swede anymore? Yeah. So I think that Canadians have also a number of such arguments for the products which came from Europe. Mm. So uh, I think we have to find here a compromise for those products we can include mm. and really they have been among these 140, but we must leave a little bit of a possibility for Canadians with some kind of restrictions, of course, mm. still to allow their citizens to produce a, a what they understand. A compromise, in a sense. Yes. Because also one has to remember what I think often is missing, because it's quite typical that you have the kind of debate, we don't get enough. But then we have to start and think about where are we at the outset? And today, if I remember correctly, we have virtually no protection of geographical indicators. So one could always say if we say no to this agreement, we will have status quo, which means no geographical indicators of Europe protected. And it's not only a Canadian issue, this. With the US, with Korea, with most of our trading partners, we have a big debate on geographical indicators because it's a traditional European thing. In the US, they have other ways of protecting. They use trademarks, for example. But as often in trade negotiations, we're convinced that our model, our system is the best and Therefore, we'd like to have that specific system. Well, that's actually one of the issues which I sometimes uh, miss in this discussion about trade. I don't think we should be too arrogant by telling that, look, Canadians now have qualifications, they do not have mm. quality, they do not have food. Our own supermarket shelves yeah. are, sorry to say, full with crap as mm. well. So are we only capable to teach others? I think we should start also with ourselves. Yeah. Canadians have very high standards, and in many places, maybe they even have higher standards. Mm. So I think we should have a little bit of this humility as well. But that brings me actually to the second area, which I know that has been a lot of discussion about around, that is around standards of, of food, consumer protection and things like that. I hear people saying that, okay, but with this new trade agreement, we will lower our standards of consumer protection. We will have hormone beef or we will have a lot of substandard products in Europe. I think it's strange to somehow imply that Canadian products are bad and European products are good. But do you think there is any merit to this argument? I would like to use uh, two explanations. First, I think we have very explicit black on white by our chief negotiator, Mr. Petriccione, that agreement, CETA, doesn't allow anybody, any company actually to go around the standards set by European mm -hmm. Union. It's very clear and pronounced. Secondly, I actually think that by adopting and ratifying CETA, we are putting these higher standards also somehow on front of other countries mm. globally who would like to trade with us. Without CETA, we will be incapable to do this. Mm. Now we would have much more legitimacy for this. And since we really live in the global world, we always try, you know, to play with this word globalization, mm. then it's not only about food standards in Sweden, Latvia, or European Union. We want to have a better food standards all around the yeah. world because we are eating and buying a lot of things from countries we can't imagine. So this actually will give us a chance to put a higher standard for other countries and eventually not let them also go around mm. our standards. One thing that I think one has to remember at all time when discussing 
standards for food or safety requirements for, for products in Europe is that that is never regulated by trade agreements primarily. It's regulated by European legislation. And for me, for example, I'm a member also of the Committee of Environment, Public Health and Food Safety. And as a consequence of CETA, of this agreement, there will be no changes to the existing food safety legislation in Europe. And if we don't change the food safety legislation in Europe, what was banned yesterday will be banned tomorrow. What was allowed yesterday will be allowed tomorrow. So it doesn't change the reality for consumers. Well, if you allow me to mm. be a little bit ironic, I would say if we would have a committee in Parliament on family affairs and church issues, mm. then probably we would have a declaration from this committee at this moment telling that this trade agreement should include something about divorces, yeah. uh, abortions <laughs> and some other issues. Mm. Yes, uh, really, I think we should not consider mm. this trade agreement as panacea to all and every issue what we are facing. Mm. We often talk about using trade agreements to promote our values or our standards. And in one aspect, I think this is an interesting trade agreement because partly it achieves some of this promotion not of values, but of our food standards. For example, the question of hormone beef, which we've had a huge conflict with the US about and even Canada as well. In this, Canada will have possibility to export hormone-free beef, quota-free, tariff-free, which might actually create more pressure for more production in Canada that would be hormone-free and would actually compete with hormone beef from the US, for example. It might actually, in a sense, help to shape agriculture in other countries. You're totally correct. Canadians admitted themselves uh, after negotiations that uh, these requirements from EU actually creates window of opportunity for Canadian farmers finally to be capable to produce and compete in the market where are beef without hormones. Mm. Before this agreement, they could not do this. So actually, mm. by these requirements, yes, we are somehow also expanding such kind of value system also mm. in American continent. Uh, this is the only way how European Union in general, by such agreements, can hope to have more influence on global affairs. Mm. The problem is that those who are opposing, they in fact are diminishing the capabilities of European Union to influence world affairs. Mm. One area where you often find this kind of protectionism is, of course, agriculture. Agriculture tends to be one of the most controversial areas in almost all free trade negotiations. To me, it's, it's a little bit sad considering the fact that at the end of the day, we should probably think a lot about consumers and tariffs in agriculture, of course, drives up prices for consumers as well. But do you hear a lot of criticism for this agreement from European agriculture saying that we want to stop it because we don't want competition from the Canadians? Well, actually, once you speak with real agricultural producers, and they're quite realistic because, for instance, the amount of pork what Canada mm. could offer to European market is only 0.4% mm. of our pork market. But uh, I think you touched upon a much deeper problem because our agricultural policy in European Union also internally is quite far from uh, being open, competitive and fair. Mm. And that is a much larger problem because if I'm looking to, for instance, Latvian farmers or Estonian farmers or Lithuanian farmers, they are still getting much, much, much smaller compensations or assistances from the European Commission just because we happen to live in a little bit more poor environments than, mm. for instance, French, German, Swedish or mm. Danish. But at the same time, we do have to compete in the global market. So that basically puts us in a much more difficult situation. And from our perspective, 
if we cannot get the equal support for uh, our farmers, then uh, we would rather see that there is no internal support at all. So this is a discussion where uh, we always have to face a lobby, lack of money, and general policies. And if we have to reform something, I must say, I am personally probably running into trouble with some of my voters, but I probably would say that we have to reform this agricultural market within the European Union. I'm very happy to hear that because very few of my colleagues here in the European Parliament dare to say that, but I think you're completely right. Looking at this trade agreement from an agriculture perspective, I also think that when we talk about agriculture, we take a defensive view, thinking about how imports might threaten agriculture. And then we forget about the fact that European Union is the world's biggest agriculture exporter. And if one looks at the tariffs on agriculture, Canadians will decrease them massively, if I understand correctly. Our exporters, 92% of them, will actually be able to sell and compete on the Canadian markets. And instead of, you know, building shelters, we should build windmills maybe and see this as an opportunity instead of a threat. I agree with you in this case too. I actually don't think that Canada will be the very largest market mm. for all our agricultural products as far as the mass volume. But at the same time, looking, let's say, through the prism of my region, I would say we should concentrate on particular niche products in agriculture because we know that globally there is much higher requirement with every year for biological, ecological products. And here, I think Europeans have a very huge capabilities mm. to offer something. Regulatory cooperation has also been very criticized. How would you describe what it is? I would probably say that this, in my understanding, is the same approach and same standards between two continents. That's how I see it. Because a lot of people that are critical say that regulatory cooperation is the way to force upon us Canadian standards or make it easier for business to influence or control regulation. Well, when we were speaking to uh, both negotiators, Canadian and European, and I must really say that these people know what they're talking about, they have been telling that one of their basic principles when they started the negotiations between European Union and Canada was either they agree on a higher standard or they do not agree, but there will be no lowering standards. I mean, we can take Canadian standard if it's higher than ours and vice versa. And again, having regulators, people like you and me or people working in the European institutions or commission to actually sit down with Canadian colleagues to discuss future regulation, I, I, I wonder Either you have very low self-esteem if you think that going to such meetings with Canadians will mean that you come back with bad legislation. I have high, I have high hopes and high, I put high belief in, in, the, in the strength of our regulatory model. So I think a more likely outcome from sitting down in a regulatory dialogue with the Canadians is that we might have another opportunity to convince them of the fact that our regulatory idea and our standards might be good. Sometimes considering the fact that we're the biggest trading bloc in the world in the European Union, when you listen to debate, you get the impression that everybody, even Canada, is able to just run us over with their system, which is probably just not true. I would say that such a discussion and years-long dialogue about trade treaties actually developing critical discourse and allows us to reveal maybe some weaker spots that we do have and improve them. 
what the exact effects and results of this free trade agreement will be is of course hard to say and that's the problem with all of these negotiations it's not we as politicians who will trade or do the business or will create the growth it has to be companies that does it and they that seize these opportunities but don't you think one can look at other advanced free trade agreements the european union has done like the one with south korea for example to see some of possible and likely effects of this free trade agreement Well, South Korea was one of the examples what we know, which brought in a years after agreement um, additional growth, jobs and benefits. But if you look in a negative way, I do not know any European trade deal, in fact, uh, which would uh, decrease something. Before one can criticize and say that we're going to stop a trade agreement, they probably have to find one trade agreement up until now that has been detrimental. When I saw the statistics on the South Korea trade agreement, the trade in goods, our exports rose by 55% since we introduced it. And services with 40%, and especially small and medium-sized enterprise, were one of the biggest beneficiaries from there. And knowing the fact that Canada is an even more comprehensive agreement, if I have to bet, I'd probably bet on the fact that it will outperform the free trade agreement with South Korea, which would be fantastic. The most controversial area and debater area in the free trade negotiations with Canada is probably investment protection. What do you say to those who say that having investment protection in this treaty will open up European countries for just being sued by multinationals and it gives a parallel court system for big business? Well, I have a lot to say actually here. First of all, investor court system is very far from being the largest and most important part of this treaty. There are many more important things. This was somehow highlighted, I would say, and even hijacked by some small groups of people who simply have another agenda to undermine this trade deal in general. But that's my subjective position. Secondly, I would say that we need international court system because between countries, even between advanced countries, the legal systems still differ. And there are different courts which are dealing with different issues. So I think it's important that we have a place where potential investor, not just multinational, but a small and medium-sized investor also can go. Thirdly, I think that we must remember that we have a number of European countries at this moment, at least six, which mm. have old-fashioned investor protection treaties with Canada. Mm. If we will not make this advanced suggestion, what we propose in CETA, these countries will be left in a more difficult situation, even by noting that none of these countries with those bad deals and bad mm. treaties ever actually suffered from Canadians. They did not. So the record is good, mm. but we want to make it even better. The next argument is that sometimes people think that this will be some kind of a parallel court system where the big guys with big money will come by their judges and then make some kind of decisions against uh, poor uh, governments. Not at all. According to CETA, Judges will be selected 50-50 by European Union side mm. and by Canadian side. So if you do not trust multinationals, at least trust your government and your court system mm. and your judges. And finally, big company, it's not a sin by itself. Mm. I do want to see how Germany, where you have such a large uh, opposition to this international court system, how Germany will survive without BMW, without mm. uh, Audi, without Volkswagen. Okay, maybe Volkswagen now <laughs> is not a nice case, but in general, I mean, 
these big companies are not necessarily evil. They are giving job to many, many people, and they are also by investing somewhere outside. They are assisting also small and medium-sized businesses. And don't look from up to down to Canadians. Don't tell that their companies are worse than European companies. I often ask myself, those who are so concerned with investment protection, what are they planning to do? If you have such a big problem with protecting investment from the fundamental principles that's in this text, if you think it's a problem to promise in a treaty that I will not discriminate, I will not expropriate without compensation, or I will not give a free fair trial, then I ask myself, what are you planning to do? <laughs> what is your policy agenda? Well, maybe somebody like uh, regimes like in Belarus or Venezuela, then uh, they yeah, probably maybe don't they like should worry. But if the political left in Europe is worried about this, then I would say you have a huge problem with the legitimacy and the moral compass that you're driving after if you can't bind yourself to these fundamental principles of rule of law. And the fact that it's only for multinationals, I think the multinationals, they have other ways to twist arms of governments instead of using legal systems. They could probably ask Chancellor Merkel to walk in there and hammer in the table and say, this is unacceptable and use political leverage, while the smaller companies, probably this could be something that they can use. Historically, it has more been used by small and medium-sized enterprises than the big multinationals. Well, actually, this is a very important paradigm, because somehow those who oppose SETA and other trade deals, they're usually telling these trade deals will benefit big companies. And I think this is totally wrong. Totally wrong. Why? Because we can compare the international trade system with international political system. Mm. Once we created League of Nations, later we created United Nations, we created European Union. In fact, all international organizations and all international agreements in many ways are favoring small and medium because the big countries, if they are out of international organizations, they simply deal according to the slogan, might is right. If the big companies and big countries are included into the bigger international organizations, the small ones have much more to say. The same with the trade agreements. If we would have SETA, small and medium-sized companies would have more to say. Mm. If we would not have SETA, then we would have simply really bigger companies mm. ruling the world. Then my last question, how will the vote go in Parliament? We will win, which means SETA will be ratified. And I would say it will be ratified by about maybe 60%. Thanks a lot for being here. And good luck to all of us. Yeah, exactly. Let's see you on the barricades. (laughs) 